This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome back to the third series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. There is a clarity and unity of vision to the dramatic world of David Eldridge that seems to land him in a particular tradition of British playwriting that I cherish. Born and raised in Romford, Essex, the dramatis personae of many of his plays seem to be born out of the same place and on a deep level informed by that world. Whether it's the charming and furious Sonny and Nick from his 1996 debut Serving It Up, the market traders, school teachers, school kids and broken souls that populated MAD, incomplete and random acts of kindness, under the blue sky and market boy through the last decade, or the fragile, defiant, late night party goers of his recent smash hit at the National Theatre beginning, Eldridge's characters feel like they might have been born on adjoining streets. They feel like they might have gone to sixth form together or bumped into each other at the Roman Road Market on a Saturday morning or in one of the newer gastro pubs that are dotted around Hackney Wick and Victoria Park on their way to the London Stadium to see his beloved West Ham United. A prolific and successful television and radio writer and maker of elegant and forceful adaptations of European masterpieces, he has, for me, defined himself as a dramatist with the force and clarity, humanity and capacity for contradiction with which he has built a dramatic version of London's East End. As much as, say, Arnold Wesker or Alan Bennett, David Eldritch has created a territory for his characters to play in that seems somehow shared. He started writing plays at Exeter University and made his professional debut with Serving It Up at the Bush Theatre in 1996. He was 23 at the time. Work at the Fimbra, Stratford East, the Battersea Arts Centre and the Donmar Warehouse followed. By the time of his Royal Court debut, the full-hearted, exquisite Under the Blue Sky in 2000, he had, before the age of 30, established himself as a playwright of real significance. Under the Blue Sky was remounted in a successful West End run in 2008, by which time he had become one of the youngest playwrights ever to have a play produced at the National Theatre's largest stage, The Olivier, 2006's Market Boy. His plays for the court are amongst his finest, I think. I love the atomised, alluring, incomplete and random acts of kindness directed by Sean Holmes here in 2005 and his Chekhovian study of grief and recovery in Basildon directed by Dominic Cook in the theatre downstairs in 2012 as much as I had my heart filled and broken by the knot of the heart at the Almeida in 2011 and beginning his magical two-hander staged with real poise by Polly Finlay in 2017. He's written for The Globe, he's written too for the intimate space of the Hampstead Downstairs, he's written new English language versions of Ibsen and Strindberg, he's adapted cinema to the stage with brilliant success. Fest had opened at the Almeida in 2004 before transferring to the West End and then to Broadway. He's also written a play with me. Well, with me and our friend and mentor, and nobody tell him, but probably our hero, Robert Holman, 2010's A Thousand Stars Explode in the Sky. He's a celebrated teacher and has been an articulate and outspoken public thinker about theatre. He's written responses to critics in The Guardian, is clear-thinking and unapologetic in his own essays on theatre, is an outspoken champion of the artistic and structural rights of the playwright, and has been a forceful presence in chat rooms and on social media. I, for one, am old enough to remember his brilliant weekly blog, one writer and his dog a love letter to his mighty dog rascal as much as a space to engage with eloquence and clarity on the contemporary debates around theatre that defined his work as much as any of my contemporaries i can think of his plays offer a beautiful counterpoint between the mess and fragility uncertainty and eloquence of his characters and the forced specificity and understanding of the political and economic world that he sets them against david eldridge Welcome to the Royal Court. All right. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's very nice. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, I was nervous writing that introduction. Why? Because of that thesis that your plays, uh, the, your characters, you know, are born of the same kind of constellation. I don't know how that... Is that something that you've thought about or...? Well, I think, I think there's a truth to it. Mm. I mean, um, I mean, what I would say is that I, I, don't, I don't think that I'm a writer that, um, that's 
particularly autobiographical in any way. I know it's mm. just something we, we were touching on downstairs over a coffee. Mm. But I do think that, that my plays uh, come out of my experience and yeah. where I'm from uh, and places that I know and places that I'm interested in. Yeah. So, so no, I, that all felt really... Um, really good i mean the, the the thing is is that people uh that sort of forget that the plays come out of my imagination as well and um it's funny you you mention him rascal actually i've been thinking about rascal mm. quite a lot recently because because he died actually three weeks ago um oh, no. and it, it's kind of it's a kind of massive part of my life yeah he sort of Aww. he was kind of living up in manchester with my sort of ex-wife basically so in the last few years he's sort of not really been my dog but he kind of has always been my dog really and then um, and he was kind of a huge part of my writing life and the thing the thing is and why this relates to what we're talking about is is one of the things i've thought about since rascal died is that what i was writing while i had him and how, in a way, I wrote the plays while I was walking with him mm -hmm. around the ponds at Whips Cross, and then latterly when I was living in rural Lancashire, up at the the kind of the reservoirs on the West Pennine Moor. Mm. I mean, you know, in Basildon, of course, it's born out of Basildon, and of course, it's born out of Romford, and of course, it's born out of Bow and Hackney Wick. But it's also born out of these bloody long walks through this <laughs> moorland mm. in rural Lancashire with this right. dog that I adored. So, you know, it's it's interesting that where the plays come from. Well, of course, they come out of of Essex and the East End and that hinterland, but they also come out of just you know making shit up i mean it's one of the <laughs> nicest things about being a writer isn't it just yeah. making stuff up yeah that's really beautiful i was i normally ask people the same first question which i'll ask mm. is your second question uh which is when was the first time that you went to the theater first time that i went to the theater yeah. well i know that I, I saw a pantomime um at the kenneth moore theater Where's that? um in ilford right um, and I don't remember what it was, mm -hmm. um, but I guess that would have been in the early 80s, basically, because I was still at junior school. Right. So probably around 83, something like that. Do you remember anything about the experience of going to see that? Just that we went on a coach. <laughs> and I remember us getting off the coach at the Kenneth Moore Theatre in Milford. Um, but, um, but no, that, that was sort of it, really. Um, until until I was seventeen, and right. then, and the the, uh, the basically the first play I ever saw, and it's ridiculous, but it's true, was mm. King Lear. <laughs> so I saw King Lear at the Barbican when I was seventeen. I've I've read you talking about that in other interviews, and it's really, it's a, it, you're beautifully vivid in the the way in which you describe the effect that that production had on you well it was extraordinary yeah. i mean that's the thing is it really did change my life and i'm sure that i wouldn't have ended up working in the theater or being a writer for the theater if i'd not seen it i mean simply it was the a trip that we all had to go on mm. because we were doing king lear in the upper sixth uh although that wasn't for a year you know it would no longer be on in a year's time so yeah. we were had to go and see it and um, it was a Nick Heitner revival and um, famously uncut coming in at something like four hours, 40 minutes or something like that. And I can remember really vividly this very sort of adolescent sort of oh, fucking old boring Shakespeare <laughs> and all that kind of crap. And I we sat down next to my mate Angus Benjafield and um, I was kind of, I suppose I was continuing with this slightly sort of boorish attitude. Oh, yeah. And Angus said, oh, it's all right, Dave. You know, halfway through, someone gets their eyes pulled out. And remember, this is the last thing I heard before the lights came down. And then halfway through, I couldn't believe it. When the lights... I mean, I was completely riveted. And, you know, the lights came up and... Um, you know, there were girls that I was at sixth form with who were all sort of lusting equally after Ray Fiennes and Linus Roach, who were both in it. I remember playing uh, Edmund and Ed Edgar. And I just was gobsmacked by what I was watching, was very quiet, and went back in. And because we were doing Much Ado in the lower sixth and weren't doing Lear until the upper sixth, I had no idea of what, was, what happened. So basically, as we got towards the end of the play, mm. when... Um, when Leah goes off to get Cordelia because the battle's won, I, I was expecting um, John Wood to just come back with Alex Kingston holding hands. 
and of course John Wood came in with her in his arms how 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 and she was dead and I was absolutely devastated and I just couldn't believe what I was watching and I couldn't believe really the f the force of it the emotional power of it and um, it made an impression and almost right away I knew that I wanted to be a part of that and I think probably I I probably because my taste has always been to try and make work uh, that kind of makes people feel something uh, more than anything else I think probably it's been a massive influence that that first taste of something that really it was a strong flavor you know yeah and it was a it was an evening full of big emotions and then um, yeah I wanted to do that for sure yeah you uh, been on record about the difference between your school life yeah which is uh was it romford school you went to it's a so public brentwood sc school brentwood school it's a yeah. public school in romford and the and and, and your family and your you, you speak so beautifully and affectionately about the the market culture that your dad worked in and working there as a as a market boy on a saturday yeah, yeah. is that something you still do you do you still think that it's not quite schizophrenia but that contradiction has been fundamental to yeah to your of course work. Yeah. i think it's lucky as well you know i think that i mean it's a, it didn't i wasn't very happy as a teenager right. because um because life was so divided you know right. um i mean i think you know this because we've talked about it over the years in various pubs mm. and and theaters and all the rest of it but i suppose people who are listening may not know this but i you know, I, I um, had a very sort of ordinary sort of kind of uh, upbringing in a sort of suburb of Romford called Collier Row. And um, I suppose my dad would be called part of the kind of blue collar classes or skilled working classes. He was a he was a shoemaker, sometime market trader. Mm. Uh, also sometimes earned a bit of money putting bets on for slightly dodgy people, uh, the dogs. Um, <laughs> You know, sort of come home with a couple of hundred quid because uh, <laughs> something for someone or other had come off, and um, and basically, um, but my my uncle sort of done done a bit sort of uh, had sort of done quite well as a garage manager, and his wife had right. um, a small business, and I think our families were a bit like you know Mike Lee's film High Hopes, where there was a sort <laughs> of my uncle and aunt, you know, who'd done a bit better, had all these kind of more middle class sort of life. Yeah. And there were there was us who had a kind of house that had sort of shit wallpaper and do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, do really clearly. Broken yeah. up paving slabs and all that. And we had no money. And then basically, I was bright at school. And my uncle and aunt encouraged my mum and dad that they should try. I should do entrance exams for private school. Right. And they were like, "Well, what's to lose? He's a bright kid. Yeah. Like, if he doesn't get offered any sort of scholarship or assisted place, well, he's not going there because we haven't got any money." So I just did these exams and got into all these schools, including Brentwood. So I ended up having this public school education, which didn't cost any money. I even mm. got my school uniform for free. Um, and um, and I did that. But of course, sort of, you know, I didn't feel like I fitted in there. Mm. And back home, um, we just carried on, you know, this sort of really sort of quite sort of hard up life sometimes. I mean... I had two aunts who worked in Marks and Spencers who used to bring shopping often on a Saturday or a Sunday, you know? Mm. Um, you know, the things that hadn't sold that yeah. my aunts had picked up cheap and things like that. Yeah. So it, it, I'm not exaggerating that. That was quite hard, you know? My my brother and I found, um, you know, the episode of Only Fools and Horses where Rodney has his first date with Cassandra <laughs> and he's embarrassed about her seeing Nelson Mandela House. So mm. he gets her to drop to, to, to drop him off at someone else's house. Well, that was quite painful for me and my brother because we did that. We got, right. we, if we got a lift home from some kid's parent at school, mm. we used to sort of get them to drop us up off, off up the road so they didn't see our house. Now, the parents must have been really kind because they will have obviously been aware of what we were doing but yeah. they never ever kind of let on right. you know yeah so it was kind of quite schizophrenic all that mm. but i mean you know in a way the greatest sort of gift for a writer you know because you know i i, I sort of always sort of believe really passionately in that sort of idea of keats in a way and negative capability of keats on shakespeare you know that what's great about shakespeare is he 
is he stands in the shoes of Othello and he stands in the shoes of Desdemona, you know? Yeah. And he'll do so often with equal confidence and force. And I, I suppose, in a way, I've always sort of felt fairly comfortable writing from within uh, a world that sort of I'm directly born out of mm. and one that I find myself in. Yeah. You know, and I often feel that... Um, you know, the plays are a bit like kind of writing home and away, you know? Not literally writing home and away. <laughs> Sorry, that sounded weird, didn't it? <laughs> but, you know, like you kind of have the plays like in Basildon, which is kind of almost like the London Stadium or Upton Park fixture. Right, right. You know, yeah. and, and, and um, you know, when you write The Knot of the Heart, you're at the Emirates somehow <laughs> as a writer. You're trying to, trying to win 3 0 at the Emirates, you know. This is silly. I should shout out. <laughs> no, it's a great analogies. analogy. No, it's good. I, I'm going to encourage you to go further into it. <laughs> but it, it's sort of yeah. I mean, mm. that all comes out of that that background. I mean, yeah. the thing that changed was when I was a sick former. I sort of suddenly occurred to me, age seventeen, mm. that actually sort of um, being having a slightly edgier background than some of my mates at school <laughs> was slightly more interesting to the girls right great so the things i kept completely kind of separate from school i didn't kind of quite do so much you know like the fact that i worked in the market as a teenager and things like that so um yeah <laughs> and your uh, the energy and the force of Heitner's King Lear drove you to Exeter University, right? Where you studied, what was the degree you did? English and drama. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I don't think Nick Heitner can take all of the credit, <laughs> actually. I mean, I, um, I had a fantastic drama teacher at school called Ruth Pryor. Right. And she, um, I did a GCSE in drama as a sixth form, as a subsidiary subject. Okay. You know, for the very ignoble reason of not wanting to do a GCSE in economics or a second yeah, language good. or anything like that, I thought, yeah. oh, I'll do a GCSE in drama. Yeah. But she did it. She did um, improvisations with us that I'd never done before. Right. And although I was a quite a poor actor, I, I probably was quite a good improviser in terms of thinking of something interesting to happen next. Yeah. And um, so I think the combination of being in a sixth form theatre club, which I joined after mm -hmm. seeing that Leah, mm -hmm. and then actually going to the theatre once a month, really, probably over the next two years, and then doing the GCSE in drama and improvisations and all of that, the mm. combo of that drove me to Exeter. And I wasn't quite confident enough to do a single honours in drama, mm -hmm. which is probably what I wanted to do. I think my parents didn't know where on earth this had come from at all like suddenly overnight I was into drama and all that and I was good at English and I loved books yeah. um, you know heads always in a novel so mm -hmm. I did English and drama at Exeter yeah and then um, that was kind of an amazing that was an amazing experience I mean you know I don't know I mean like when I went there there was still a kind of hangover from the kind of 1980s and 70s and our drama kit was a karate gi <laughs> I remember like you know <laughs> Sort of turning up there and thinking, like, you know, the first project was on ritual and pre theatre and sort of rolling around the floor and chanting and yoga and thinking, fucking hell. I didn't realise I was going to be doing this here, you know. But it was kind of wonderful, you know, and, you know, within another term, we had a project on Brecht, but the professor announced the way that we were going to study Brecht was that. We were gonna we were gonna write as a year group a Brechtian version of the Wind in the Willows. So I mean, you know, the Wind in the Willows has a great class reading because there's a revolution, isn't there, by yeah. the proletariat yeah. in Wind in the Willows. Yeah. And so we, we we did this and toured it around schools in Exeter, you know, while alongside made this sort of Gegenstuch. I think that's the you yeah. probably know the pronunciation better than <laughs> I me. Probably don't. Um, the kind of response play, the yeah. Brechtian response play, and that was wonderful. And that was a first experience of writing. Right. First experience of writing. I mean, had you written as a teenager like lyrics or poetry or? I've written some written some fairly good poetry actually. Really, uh, I, I won the school prize for oh, first man. composition. Oh great! Yeah, That's it's quite good. embarrassing in a way. Have because you still got it? I have, but no one's seeing it. Um, <laughs> but I got. <laughs> I showed my English teacher, and unbeknownst to me, kind of. I, he showed, put it in for one of the headmaster's prizes. I had no idea there was even such a prize. Right. 
I got a copy of Anthony Shares, The Year of the King. Yeah. yeah it was oh, my nice. prize for, for nice. Verse competition. So I'd done odds and ends of writing. Yeah. But um, no, the kind of first real writing I think I did was sort of about 15. We had a GCSE project, which was English language project, which was to write the next episode of Boys from the Black Stuff that I remember really enjoying oh, doing as a yeah. 15 year old. And then improvising. Yeah. Um, and then it was writing bits of, um, you know, bits of, you know, Wildwood. And, you right. know, and I remember writing, there was a revolutionary sort of Trotskyite ferret or weasel <laughs> or something called Boddington. And I remember sort of writing these sort of rabble rousing speech for Boddington that was part of the play that our whole year wrote. And that was, you know, you did know, that. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I was talking to these guys. Uh, my school drama experience was in a school production of Wind in the Willows. Wow. Yeah, when I played with Wayne McGregor, the choreographer Wayne McGregor playing Mr. Toad, because I went to school with him. Um, I played a second ferret. Did you? So in, in our production of Wind in the Willows, had no lines. If I'd been in your production, <laughs> I could have had like the lead role. The hero. I would have been <laughs> Bonington. That's a beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> when we made uh, A Thousand Sides Exploding yeah. in the Sky, one of the things that we did. Um, in preparation for writing that play was we took each other, myself and yourself and Robert Holman, uh, to a place which is very dear yeah. to us from our from our upbringing and I took you guys to Stockport and Robert took us up to Teesside and uh, we met his mum and that was beautiful uh, and you took us to Exeter yeah. and we met Peter Thompson, right? That's right, yeah. Um, who's an important man in your intellectual development and your writing. Yeah, well Peter was the, was the lecturer who did that project. Right. I mean, right. that was very much Peter, you know. And he um, encouraged you to write. Yeah, he told me, he said, look, he said, you're, you know, with a glass of red hand in, red, red wine in one hand and a fag in the other hand, <laughs> said that you're a crap actor, but you're a rather <laughs> wonderful writer. And he was, you know, uh, <laughs> sort of 19, was sort of taken away with one hand and yeah. giving with the other, All you right. know. But fortunately, my disappointment in hearing one thing didn't... Um, didn't block your ears block, to the yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of yeah. block out the other thing that was rather important yeah. so so i carried on writing and um i wrote um you know when i wrote really to wind up the people i was at uni with really that was the initial <laughs> gesture being completely honest about it in what way what was what well i mean the drama department at exeter was wonderful and is wonderful yeah um I found though sometimes when I was there that the kind of the right onness of the place could be ridiculous. Okay. So there was one lecturer who wouldn't refer to the Falklands as the Falklands, he referred to the Falklands as Las Malvinas, okay, for yeah. example. <laughs> yeah. And you know, there was a very famous example of a of a student who did a practical piece that began with a prologue of herself marching on the stage naked, sh waving her fists at the audience and shouting, a woman is more than a cunt. <laughs> like that. So, so there was a kind of this atmosphere there, which was wonderful, but also, you know, like, you know, there was a part of me that wanted to kind of go, okay, all right, but not all of the world thinks like this, and particularly where I'm from. So, you know, I, I I wrote a piece about three, a short novice piece about three men, mm. where at least a typic, typical novice play, because mm -hmm. it's like a waiting room, which could be <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? A limbo. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which yeah. was three men, one of whom, uh, a young guy whose girlfriend had had an abortion without telling him. Mm -hmm. One guy, he, uh, his young daughter had died. And then the other guy, I think it was like a, a babe, a, like a, like a, a much younger infant had died. So it's all men and loss. Mm -hmm. But that was quite a provocative gesture that played within the context of uni, particularly including the story of the guy whose girlfriend had had an abortion that had not not told him about it. Mm -hmm. So I did that, and mm -hmm. um, I suppose I did a thing that was much more comfortable within the atmosphere of political atmosphere of Exeter in a way, in that I. I wrote a play called Thatcher's Children, mm -hmm. which was a play of monologues that was respond kind of each each uh, inspired in some way from the moment when Thatcher resigned, mm. and that was inspired by a Robert Patrick play called Kennedy's Children, 
which oh, was a very big hit in the 70s yeah. the same idea and then um and then at the end of my second year i was really struggling rise, revising for my part one exams and i really didn't want to kind of go over milton and spencer and all of that <laughs> So yeah. I made a bargain with myself that basically each night while I was revising, I was going to try and write a bit. So wow. on the first night, I wrote a scene between A and B, and um, it was it was Sonny and Nick. It was the first scene of oh, serving wow. it up, um, wow. and so yeah, I kind of Wildwood and Peter unleashed a thing, yeah. and I kind of I wrote all the time really while I was at, at uni did yeah. you finish serving your top at Exeter yeah I did yeah yeah, yeah I did I um, I uh, I sort of the following night I thought actually I stepped back one yeah I, I the following morning I showed my mate Leon on the way to a lecture the scene that I'd written yeah I suppose I wanted a bit of approval in the way that writers beginning do and continue to yeah, <laughs> yeah, continue yeah, to. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and um, and Leon sort of said it was funny great and he said well what happens next oh. and um, and so basically what that night when I looked at it after I'd done my revision so the treat was writing mm. I thought this is bloody ridiculous you know they've not even got names and I decided one of them would have an old-fashioned East End, East End name right Sonny yeah and uh and the other one would be Nick hmm. and then basically I just there was no story in that scene and if you look at that scene it's basically what I wrote in Exeter wow. there's no story in it it's just two blokes riffing about getting drunk going out girls wanking it's just it's just two guys in their early 20s you know <laughs> and um I just sort of thought um what's the worst thing that could happen to these guys and it's thought basically Nick is shagging Sonny's mum and Sonny doesn't know about it and then basically I had a, I had a plot I didn't mm. realise at the time I had a plot it's but a, I just knew what was going to happen it's, next it's a really fascinating kind of uh, uh, instinctive response to an initial sketch and yeah. speaks of something deep in your metabolism uh, of the, the dramatist in you to ask that question what's the worst thing that can happen as opposed to what's the next thing they can chat about yeah seems like that's the difference between somebody who's born to write drama and somebody who's, who's maybe not yeah maybe maybe not i don't know i mean i think that i think there's that i think also as well you know it seemed accessible to me just because i'd seen things like that in romford as a teenager yeah. working on the stall you know yeah. like i'd seen you know i knew boys whose whose mums were up to this and that right. do you know what i mean yeah, they didn't yeah, know yeah. about it yeah. and and so it kind of felt accessible and not like it was a ridiculous story that was completely beyond me you know but that was what i did simon i just basically wrote a bit of the play yeah. each night over about 10 days or mm. something and then that was it yeah how did you know what to do with it well i didn't right so basically i showed it to peter thompson the yeah. prof mm -hmm. and um very quaintly because it was pre-email a few days later i had a note in my pigeonhole or the e pigeonhole because yeah. i didn't have my own pigeonholes and just undergrad <laughs> and um peter said he thought the play was wonderful and to come and see him and so i went to see him and he said that um that i should enter it for the international student playwriting competition and also to send it to theatres in london some of whom i'd heard of like this theatre the royal call yeah uh, and the National Theatre, which I thought was bananas, <laughs> and some that I didn't, I didn't know yeah. at all. Actually, even yeah. though I'd done a bit of theatre going by then, I'd never heard of the Bush Theatre, right, or the Finborough Theatre. Yeah. I'd sort of just about heard of Hampstead, right. Um, and he said I should send it off, and um, I was much more sort of obedient and respectful of authority, actually, <laughs> at twenty than I am now, to be honest. <laughs> so even though. It, seemed completely stupid I thought well it's not stupid because he's told me what to do yeah and so in the way that we used to have to I went and got all these copies bound oh, and yeah. the stamped addressed I envelopes it cost me 20 quid yeah, it's brutal <laughs> isn't it it was brutal that was the hardest thing about writing in those times well I've said this getting so the many postage together and the photocopying I've said this so many times times something but I it felt like I remember it f so vividly going to the university print shop and yeah. getting all this done and I remember thinking and I had 
so little money as a student as well thinking I might as well have got this £20 note and just literally put it in the drain this is just such a ridiculous thing to do but nevertheless I've been told to do it so I'm going to do it <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 so and then what happened because clearly it was I mean I know what happened in the long term but well, did I mean, you expect a response? Did you get response? Well, it was a few months later. Yeah. I got this phone call in like the student <laughs> house from my mum <laughs> at like half eight in the morning. I thought, shit, someone's died. Like, right. Mum never rings me at uni, let alone at half eight in the morning. <laughs> and she sort of said, um, oh, you've, you've had some post. And, um, <laughs> and um, it's, uh, I went, right. And uh, she said, oh, like I didn't mean to look, but it was like it got really wet in the rain, you know. <laughs> and basically, it was the Soho Theatre right. returning the script, mm. but inside was a letter from Paul Syrett, the literary manager at the time, mm. saying that they weren't going to produce the play, but he thought it was a really wonderful play and would I come and have a cup of tea with him? It would be great to find out a bit more about me. And then gradually, over the next a few months um, everyone in fact apart from this theatre actually the court was the only theatre that rejected it outright on the unsolicited pile um, yeah <laughs> even the National Theatre liked it not the court not the court um, but people all saying the same which is come yep. in for a cup of tea yep. and then the you know something like eight months later I thought the play had got lost uh, the bush I still hadn't heard from so I decided to ring them up mm. and um, you know theatre is so different you know when we were starting out from what it is now I rang up the rang the bush up and Dominic Dromgore who ran the bush at the time answered the phone <laughs> <laughs> hello who are you <laughs> who's this <laughs> and he just that would be great if Vicky Featherston answered the <laughs> yeah. phone here that would be went, so much better <laughs> It was brilliant. It was that he said, um, I said, oh, uh, I'm David Eldridge. I'm after the literary manager, Joe and Reardon. He said, oh, hello, I've just read your play. And that oh, was like, no. and I thought, is he really Dominic Trumbull? <laughs> and that was it. That was it. That was how it all started. But they said they, they might do the play. And they did do the play. And they did do the play, yeah, yeah about seven months later. Yeah. What are your memories of that production? Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it was like... I mean, I always feel this anyway that, that 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 a production is Christmas come early. You know, when as a as a writer, you're, you know, it's it can be such a kind of solitary experience, and then you're part of a team, a gang. Mm. You know, everyone's rowing towards towards kind of making your vision and your telling your story. You know, in a beautiful way, and that was my first experience of it, and it was joyful and. We had a crack cast, Eddie Marsden and yeah. Jake Wood played the boys as yeah. young actors and brilliant then as they are now. And um, I just, it was such a, a, a fantastic experience, you know, and um, I suppose, you know, the thing that was, apart from saying it was fun, you know, I, I learned a lot from it because I didn't, like I, I knew what I was doing up to a point, you know, it was a first play. Yep. But also, there were other things that I didn't anticipate at all. Like what? So, well, I didn't realise how funny the play was. <laughs> um, mm. Even though that was your first note, your first note you got back from your mate on the uh, yeah. on the walk. <laughs> yeah. Well, I yeah. thought it was, you know, it's serious. It's about somebody <laughs> shaking someone else's mum, and you know, and there were all these terrible things happening. Yeah. In it. I didn't, you know, I didn't. I thought that there were moments that were lighter. I just didn't realise how funny it was. Yeah. And also, um, I kind of learned something from it that, like, is part of my practice to this day, which is to do with to do with our off-stage action has to have a subtext. So, in the final act of the play, there's a bit where the news comes out that Nick's been sort of shagging Sonny's mum, mm. and the boys have this argument and sort of the beginning of a fight, yeah. and then Nick runs off, and then uh, Val, Sonny's mum, comes in. And she just chats shit, you know, like about her day. And um, huh. and at the time, I knew that I was kind of, I did know as a novice playwright that I was generating tension, you know, that she's talking and talking and talking. And he doesn't, you know, she doesn't know what he knows. Maybe she's picking up slightly something's wrong. Yeah. But what I realised was, was that... Um, 
as I watched it at the bush again and again and again was that she could have been reading the yellow pages and the audience was oh. still been riveted at that moment because yeah. of the subtext that was established yeah. and then I realized that actually like as long as I establish a subtext you know I can I can say anything a character can say anything really and therefore that's a great place in a play to do offstage action or backstory is when you've established a clear subtext it's in the kind of aftermath of an event and if you look at anything that I've written there's always a moment like that in the play or screenplay basically huh. um, and it was through seeing that night after night at the wow. bush you know yeah just you know and I used to think that I used to think yeah she could just literally start talking about West Ham now she could start talking about an apple pie and the, at the risk of getting very technical I'm fascinated by the construction of what you call subtext yeah, yeah. so by which I take it you mean that there's a difference but the, the, the space between what a character is saying and what a character is doing and what other characters are aware of that um, yeah. uh, the extent to which other characters are aware of that space yeah. that it's in that space yeah. that real kind of dramatic heart is yeah? yeah well I think in serving it up it's particularly powerful because it's also kind of there's also dramatic irony isn't there yeah, of course, play yeah. in yeah. that situation yeah. but yeah you know I mean I think that if there's that space for the audience mm it's a place where the audience maybe can be slightly ahead of the characters in yeah, some ways yeah yeah um you know or you know where you, you're creating a space where the characters are kind of slightly uncertain of where they stand that we can imagine into great then you know you can kind of say anything and yeah. then so that was a great it it's was a, a great learning it's thing it's a great uh uh moment of clarity about the function of language in drama yeah. as well because actually you know the language is kind of nowhere near as important yeah. as the behaviour and the and the awareness of behaviour, yeah, yeah. which is really exciting. I think. But I learned other good lessons yeah. as well at the bush. Like I learned um, about you know just not to kind of trust too much about image images of writers. Um, <laughs> so you know I could see that I was like being marketed in a certain way, right. you know. And there was a it was a time of real energy for marketing of playwrights and the, the yeah, late Brit 90s, Pop yeah, and in Pop. your face theatre and yeah. all of that and quad, you know quadrophenia style imagery and on press night I was I was kind of trying to calm my nerves with a gin and tonic at yeah. the bar at the old bush yeah. and Deborah Eden, who was the general manager at the bush, literally saw the gin and tonic and took it out of my hand and put a pint of lager in, and she said, "We don't want Michael Billington seeing you with a gin and tonic." <laughs> 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 so you know and it kind of all it's always slightly made me laugh you know the kind yeah. of marketing of writers and I always remember that I always also really remember like feeling slightly pleased with myself you know about three weeks into the run that I'd had this hit that had sold out the bush mm. and was at the bar in the old bush again getting some drinks and the, at the hot interval and this um, this woman and this man come and standing next to me this woman going well I don't know why this has done so well this play is shit <laughs> and then having this whole conversation about why my play was terrible and I remember at the time going through this it's the first time anything like that had happened to me so the range of emotions I sort of virtually felt like I went through the whole of human experience in like two minutes at the bar <laughs> but I came out of it thinking oh yeah you know like not everyone is going to like your play right. you know yeah I loved working at the bush as well in the sense that it was um, a place where at that time it didn't seem too far away from what I'd been in at uni everyone mucking in you know I love the fact that yeah. all the staff there including Dominic Dromgall mm. took it in turns to tear the tickets at the stop at the top of the stairs mm. you know I loved the fact that Nicholas de Jong was banned from the bush th at the time the <laughs> bush Nicholas de Jong was scared. the evening standard theatre critic yeah the yeah time, he yeah. was he was he was banned from the bush at the time he wasn't allowed to come and review there you he know was there a was peculiarly a obnoxious man in my memory oh god awful <laughs> um but also as well, you know, there was like, you know, the afternoon before, um, before a Saturday afternoon, they didn't do Saturday, mat Saturday mat matinees at the bush at the time before serving it up. You know, man, you were at QPR and there was a fucking big fight in the pub. Like we came to the pub and there was like a broken window and there were broken chairs. And, and that all felt like amazing, you know. Yeah. It felt like the theatre that I was in was really um, a place about doing something that was real in some way you know that was about people trying to do something together and it wasn't too polished it was just about kind of you know 
Um, I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying now. Anyway, I learned a lot. Well, it's yeah. about the mess of humanity in the in the. I mean, my memory of the bush at that time was that there was a beautiful humanity to the theatre. Yeah, the relationship between the play and the audience in yeah. that old L shape was yeah. I- I- extraordinary in the bush. Yeah, um, we can. Well, uh, uh, you had two there, didn't you? In yeah, the old bush, yeah. Uh, one minute and Christmas. Yeah, that's right. In yeah, the, in a, in a, and then Seawall. Yeah, uh, uh, a few years later. That's right. If we talk at this length about all your plays, we're going to be here for seven yeah, hours. Sorry, it's so beautiful, but <laughs> it's a terrible thing about ch- talking to mates doing this. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. I just want to relax into it and yeah, kind of yeah. go and get the pints in. Can I? T- <laughs> <laughs> um, can I talk to you about? Uh, I'm going to just choose a few then. Yeah, yeah, of course. Plays. I'd love to talk a little bit about Under the Blue Sky, which was the first play of yours that I read. Yeah. When I was uh, uh, I was resident dramatist here. Yeah. Um, and a, a play of extraordinary feeling. Um, tell us about the writing of that play. What do you remember about the the writing of that play? Well, I remember um, feeling that um, feeling a bit annoyed, I suppose, in a in a um, you know about how. I saw teachers being portrayed on TV and in the theatre. Right. Because I, at the time, knew quite a few teachers and I didn't think that they were very much like the teachers I knew. And so I wanted to write about teachers. Um, And I just wanted to write a two-hander. I was interested in this idea of unrequited love and teaching. Um, It felt, they felt like they were both kind of a good metaphor for the other. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but with with a two-hander in three acts I saw it as three acts the beginning of an evening the drunken attempt at a fuck and then the hangover Um, it felt very contrived somehow more contrived than I wanted it to be and Mm. so I had a a year or so of trying to write the plaza two-hander in it not really working and then just one day on a bus um, I thought that it could be three two-handers uh, and still have the same structure of beginning first drink yeah. drunkenness hangover yeah and if uh, if it was three sets of teachers three couples then i could do different kinds of unrequited love in a way yeah. and also then the play would have six teachers rather than two so yeah. there'd be a whole portrait of a world then yes and so then i i just went away and i wrote the play mm. it was very very clear then um because the first act was quite tight in terms of how the characters um, you know like it's so awkward and tense what's going on between them I I really structured that play quite tightly like I had kind of about ten story beats and I kind of did it quite rigorously yeah and then I wrote that in about a week yeah and then the second act I tried to structure it in the same way and it wouldn't work because the characters were drunk so um I basically had her her shags was the way that I structured that and she could basically one shag could be one line or another shag could be a whole speech but her shags were the way what got me through the play and then uh, you know the final act you know it's something a Holman-esque thing this but bringing the play bringing the play home uh, I kind of felt like I knew where I needed to get to which is these two people that are in love underneath yeah. a beautiful blue sky yeah and that was it uh, it was a commission for the bush um, the bush hated it it was a complete shock um, their hatred was a complete shock yeah they thought it was they didn't just didn't want to do it they really didn't like it and I right um, and it's already well documented this it's not yeah. something I'm saying for the first time but I was very thrown by it because I felt that I'd written my best work yeah and so it's like feeling like you're being told that you're mad somehow you know Mm. it felt beyond a normal rejection of which I'd experienced a few Mm. and I spent a while trying to get it on Uh, people can it's a very interesting play some will do it (laughs) 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 and then I didn't send it here to the court because it it had an optimistic ending (laughs) (laughs) the wrong court would be a waste of time it seems so stupid now but um but eventually, I and I didn't have the confidence because of that. Literally, the Royal Court was the only place in the country that I'd not <laughs> sent the play. So I thought there was no point. And in the end, I didn't even still didn't have the confidence to send it to Ian Rickson, even yeah. though I knew him. I gave it to Stephen Jeffries, bless him. Yeah. 
and um, he just came back and said he thought it was my best play <laughs> and within a week later I was in Ian's office and yeah. within like another week it was on yeah I remember the speed the, sp <laughs> the speed of getting the call because in, in my memory it wasn't even emails then I got a phone call from Ian Rickson saying there's a play about teachers and I'd been a school teacher yeah I remember and you yeah. read it straight away <laughs> and, uh, and the heat and love surrounding that play in this theatre at that time was really palpable I know I, someone told me I'm trying it might have been it might I think actually two people told me not you actually I think Robert Holman who was mm. in on that meeting yeah that's right and Ian Rickson actually told me that Max couldn't come to the meeting and instead he'd written a written a letter Max saying, Stafford Clark yeah, yeah yeah and um in praise of the play basically yeah. and yeah. I always remember thinking it was quite a good thing that because if Ian was unsure about it that might have made him a bit sure because <laughs> he'd have had it for out of joint I would have guessed at the time <laughs> he would have taken it yeah. I'd love to see that letter at some point if I can ever get my hands on it but um yeah it was amazing he it was amazing he yeah. letter did Max Stafford Clark yeah the uh, and I remember the time you saying that it was the uh, the Royal Courts allowed one uplifting play every decade or something and that was the the uplifting play of the noughts well Maybe someone said it was the first optimistic ending in 15 years <laughs> I remember thinking that surely can't be true, but maybe it was true. Tell me about your relationship to the Royal Court. Well, it, it's a bit uneasy. Right. And I quite like it like that, actually. I right. don't... I've always felt as a writer that I shouldn't belong to anyone. Right. And last of all, any theatre, because yeah. I have to just finally write what I want to write. Yeah. And, and I remember, I mean, God, Ian Rickson must have thought I was such a prick. <laughs> Like when when serving it up was on right. at twenty two and yeah. it had done well at the bush, he said, "Would you like a commission for the royal court?" And I said, "No, thank you." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Well, I've got a commission for the bush." And that was it. I didn't didn't occur to me to accept a commission for the royal court. Yeah. Yeah. So I just I've always sort of had a slightly sort of distant. Um, Relationship, and there have been times where I've really been in felt close to the building mm. where I've come and seen a lot, and other times when I've seen much less or you know been around a lot less. But I think that you know, um, I think that I still think that this is the most important theatre in the world, even though I have that kind of uneasy relationship sometimes with the building. And I would, I would hate to think that I will never have a play on here again. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I share that love and fear. Yeah. As well, it's, you know, every time I watch a play here, I think you might never get on this stage again. Yeah, but I think because it matters what the work that goes on here. Yeah. I kind of feel that I've really got to have something that I really. I mean, you have to. This has to be the case with any play. Yes. But, but I think that there's something particular about the court and the way that you're pushing at something or other, yeah. you know, um, to, to come back here in a way. Um, when I uh, was writing the introduction and thinking about your work mm. and thinking about my knowledge of your plays, it's not that I was surprised, but I was really struck by the clarity of the political landscape in which you set your plays. Mm. Like these are plays which are set against warfare you know, they're set against the Iraq war, they're set against political events that are really clearly established. Yeah. When I think of you, if, if somebody were to say to me, you know, uh, is David Eldridge a political playwright? Uh, I, I think it wouldn't be the first adjective I would reach for to describe you. I yeah. would talk about your heart or your spirit of contradiction or the humanity yeah. of the characters. But do you, um, is that something you think a lot about? Is when you're thinking about, you're talking about writing for Royal Court and you feel you need to have something to say, your plays seem carved out of a political response to the world as much as they are as a human response to the people yeah, who've affected you. Yeah, of course they are. Yeah. yeah, and I think they have to be because because I think it, everything has a context. Right. And it's naive to, I think, for anyone in life to think that anything you do somehow sort of operates in any kind of vacuum of any right. kind. You know, you know, you know, uh, particularly the gesture of writing a play. I know this is a David Hare thing, but when you are getting a group of people together to experience your story, do you know what I mean? Then yeah. that is by definition a political act, you yeah. know? Yeah. And and I'm I'm interested in the sweep of history. I'm interested in the forces of politics. You know, life is change. And I think drama is change, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, the kind of inexorable march of history are all things I'm really, really interested in. So 
I, I it, you know, even in a play like Beginning, mm. it's kind of really important to have a joke about Jeremy Corbyn, <laughs> just so that you know where we are. Yeah. You know, yeah. this precise moment in time mm. when two people are thinking about whether the idea of progress is possible, mm. albeit within the context of an incredibly personal uh, version of what progress might mean, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. That's really, really important, you know, and um, but also the kind of the context within the theatre and the architecture of the theatre as a landscape. So, you know, I... You know, it was really important to me in writing The Knot of the Heart to say that this character, Lucy, lives on Gibson Square, which is directly behind behind the Almeida. Yeah, I remember you talking about yeah. these that yeah. she meets her dealer in Ottolenghi, you know? <laughs> this is this is a world mm. where, where this relatively well healed Almeida audience are coming and going. You know, they're gonna hopefully see this world in slightly different eyes. Remember there was a joke in, in Basildon that was on here, mm. was the last play I had here that Dominic yeah. Cook did in 2012. Yeah. And there was a joke in it that we cut, and I always slightly regret it, and I know why it was cut, and basically it's um, because when I was researching the play, I, I just, I was so lucky, I came across this basically tower block as part of this council estate that was being demolished in Langdon. Mm. which is part of Basildon, yeah. and a fairly rough part of Basildon. And basically the tower block was called the Royal Court. And I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. It was just like a gift. And so I had this line yeah. in the play where, um, where, where Ken <laughs> says to Barry about, oh, it's a shithole. And Barry says, don't you fucking call the Royal Court a shithole. And <laughs> 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 we... And we cut it because uh, Dominic just thought it was just it was too much of an in joke, and it, you know, and maybe it was, but kind of, there was a part of that play. I mean, there's a character in that play that's a playwright, you know. Yeah. You know, and and maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, you know. Um, so the context for a play, you know, is really important. What's really uh, that's fascinating to me is for a playwright. When I think of your plays and the specificity of the characters is so rich. What's great about that observation is that in the process of writing, you're really drawing attention to the fact that we're in a bloody theatre together. These for characters who are so real, you're acknowledging that they're made up. Yeah, <laughs> which which I which I really cherish. Do you have a sorry? You're going to say something? Well, yeah, I've always thought the whole theatre's got to be theatrical idea is 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 so silly. Go on, <laughs> talk to me about that. Because it is by default theatrical, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, right, we've, right. we've all paid 50 quid for the experience, <laughs> apart from anything else. We've bought an overpriced fucking gin and tonic. We know we're at the theatre. We can't be anywhere else. You know, I just think the idea that you have to have a character turn out or do something with the lighting, huh. you know, to, to go to an audience, you're in the theatre, yeah. is, is, is that's fine as an aesthetic choice. Yes that's absolutely fine what i am less kind of keen on is something that i heard as an undergraduate which is you must signal overtly that this is theater do right. you know what i mean yeah for it to be theater otherwise it's not and and i they're all it's always theater you know i mean there's a lot of nonsense talked by people that know no diddly squat about writing either plays or screenplays who yeah. confuse TV realism with the kind of realism that we sometimes see on the stages of this country. Apart from anything else, they don't seem to notice that in the theatre it's all about sustaining the action. You know, in TV and on in the movies, you cut away all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's often the cut that's telling the story. And it's they're very different kinds of things. But I mean, you know, I shouldn't start on this because, as you say, it's a whole. It's a whole other podcast, really. <laughs> I'm happy to go there. I mean, you've been... Uh, one of the things which I find bracing and inspiring about your company, just as a mate, is you're so unapologetic about uh, your anger at certain elements about how playwrights are presented, what playwrights yeah. ought to be doing. You're the only playwright I've, uh, I've come across who've ever wrote back to a critic in your letter to Michael Billington um, after he complained about 90-minute plays. Is that anger important to you, do you think? Do you... Are you driven by that? I don't. I don't think I'm. I'm driven. I think I probably was in my twenties and thirties. Not right. so much now. I probably yeah. mellowed out a bit as I got into my forties. Mm. But I think that. I think it's. I think. 
this is something that your your agent Mel Kenyon says actually, right? And I agree with her. Yeah. And and that's that she, she I remember her saying that it's writers who really drive the form forwards. Yeah. There there have occasionally been other visionary theatre makers that have really driven a form forwards. And if you think of people like Bre- uh, P- uh, Peter Brook, for example, mm-hmm. somebody who really really moved the theatre forwards. Actually, it's 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 actually innovations by writers. That have required the theatre to do something new, and um, mm. I really believe in the writers. The writers are the people that I'm most interested in in the theatre. Right. Um, yeah. And I think the relationship between the writing, the actor, and the audience is the something that I find inspiring more than anything else. At a time when directors have become quite celebrated in the last year or so, with kind of celebrity directors or kind of you know the European director aesthetic coming into this conversation well i think that i think that you know this is where you have to be careful because Mm. i think that that i think sometimes people mistake my enthusiasm uh, (laughs) uh, as prescription right great and it's not really you know it's just what i'm interested in and what i believe in yeah and um and i go and see all sorts of work um i mostly see new plays because that's what i'm mostly interested in but you know I'm going to see um, Company. That's the next thing I'm booked for. Great. You yeah. know, uh, you know that sort of couldn't be further in a way from yeah. the part of the theatre that I, yeah. you know, work in. Um, I'm interested in all sorts of sort of, of work. But I just f- do feel fiercely uh, that the writer is important. You know, and what a writer, the stories a writer has to tell, and what a writer has to say. Are the things that I've always found most exciting. I just that's just me. I'd love to talk a little bit about your process, about whether the process has changed for you. Yeah. And I wonder if maybe uh, you could talk a little bit about the process of writing beginning. Yeah. Uh, maybe as a, and and kind of s- s- compare that to writing in Basildon or not of the heart or. Well, the the process is. I mean, the main difference now is that I enjoy rewriting much more than I used to. Right. And that's become much more part of what I do. Mm. Um, I'd say in the last 15 years so um, I mean it's incredibly old fashioned I know in many ways but I I really believe in kind of what Ibsen did I remember Mark Ravenhill telling me to get Ibsen's notebooks and oh. that they'd be really in, that they were really inspiring and it's because you you see Ibsen's slightly dodgy drafts do you know what I mean you yeah. see the bits I've before. not even heard of this book it's beautiful um, and so I think Ibsen had a thing of doing three drafts before he sent it to his publisher. And so I have that role that I do three drafts before I send it to a management. And I really enjoy that, that time that's about me really trying to get the play right. Um, Where do you work? um, Well, at the moment, I've got an office uh, at Birkbeck where I do some lecturing. And I also have got a kitchen table in a mm. kitchen that's got really big windows and there's lots of light yeah. so it's a bit half and half yeah. and um, I work quite well between those spaces as long as I've got some uh, the only disturbance I really like is um, is Radio 4 on very quietly um, while you're writing? yeah, very wow. quietly Yeah, you suddenly realise Woman's Hour's been on and you've not heard a word of it because <laughs> it's been a good morning you know. and then you've got the omnipresent voices of the world ongoing regardless of what yeah. you're doing yeah but in terms yeah. of process, I mean, there's not a way that I write the plays. What right. I do, what I do is I try and find out the way that each play needs to be written. Mm. So under the blue sky that we talked about earlier, you know, the different the way that I wrote Act One didn't help me write Act Two. Great was was is a is a, a thing. So, you know, in Basildon was a play where I looked at all of Chekhov's major plays, and I looked at, thought about four act plays and the movement of those plays. Yeah. Um, that was really important um, with a beginning which you asked about I mean that's just um, an argument for gestation I would say mm. in that I had that idea for 10 or 15 years mm. wow and it was the most f- it's the thing that I've written that I've most fantasised about I mean it often felt like delayed gratification that play <laughs> in that I always thought oh, I've got to write this play it, it kind of came from a funny story. It sort of, it sort of 
partially happened to a mate of mine where he sort of he'd pulled someone at a house party and didn't realize that he'd pulled <laughs> was the last man standing and then suddenly realized that the girl whose house it was was interested in him right and we said well what happened he said oh, it was really awkward well well we sort of tidied up a bit eventually opened a bottle of wine it was yeah it was really awkward put some music on <laughs> <laughs> eventually we had a shag on the sofa <laughs> I remember thinking it was really funny and I always wanted to write this play but it was just the years went by and I never ever wrote the play and then eventually I was meant to do work on this TV job and it all went tits up for one reason or another um, but it kind of went tits up in a way that meant that I had a few quid in the bank Right. Um, so I thought what am I going to do like I just thought I'm just going to try and write this play yeah yeah and um writing for yourself effectively yeah it's the first non-commissioned play I'd written in over 20 years wow. and it was this play I'd always fantasised about and um yeah I just felt my way with it mm. really um the different bits of the evening you mm. know the tidying up the wine the music on the iPod, fish finger sandwiches. <laughs> they, they were kind of like the play's tent poles. Right. Uh, you, you know, you've just got to get to the can of Stella. Brilliant. You and, know? And then you know you've got to get from the can of Stella to the fish finger sandwich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got to do it in three pages. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard for me to talk about process because I do do the right all, all of them in different ways. Yeah. But you've sort of touched on something there that is important to me, which I've remember hearing this lecture at university where Gre I think Grenville Barker or someone said that something has to happen in a play every 10 minutes right. I remember thinking that's ridiculous <laughs> what a boring play you know nothing you've got that couldn't happen now and then I remember thinking to myself well where, how often does something have to happen in a play right. I remember thinking probably the, the length of a pop song or an ad, ad break for a modern audience so when I, I when I write a play or a screenplay, and I, I'm trying to sort of work work it out, I I often work in three minute beats. Wow. So if I kind of That's know, crazy. I mean it's kind of how I wrote in Basildon in a way. So I knew I'd looked at Chekhov, I looked at four act shapes, yeah. and I thought, yeah, these these acts are roughly half an hour each. Yeah. So roughly ten things have to happen in each act of this play, and of course when you write the play, you know. <laughs> You, you lose beats, you add beats, you know that, that things happen, but it's a way of me ensuring that there's always something going on in the drama, that the story's always moving forwards, you yeah. know? Yeah. And it also means that it's like, you know, you know, that we've had the tent poles as an analogy. Well, let's also say if you're kind of, it's the next thing as you're scaling the face of the kind of, the mountain, do you know what I mean? You're pitching yeah. the hook in. Um, yeah, I don't know, research has become more important meeting people I love that meeting no, people who might in some way be involved in the world you're yeah, writing yeah the real with people or, yeah, so yeah. they're not at the heart meeting junk parents of junkies psychologists yeah. I've, I've been this is not in the theatre I've just spent a lot of the last two years in in, 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 in intensive care unit hmm. once a month because I'm working on a TV show that's Quite. sort of set in an ICU yeah like I absolutely love it just m meeting people that have got a life experience and a story that are gonna you know that are gonna tell me how it is is a, is a big thing now I think how has uh, becoming a dad affected your writing oh god it, it's made me a bit more uncompromising actually um, I can't bear the thought of um, either of my sons Bertie or Will actually quite um, moving saying that out loud hmm. um, can't bear the thought of them reading anything of mine and thinking that I'd taken a shortcut in some way or wow. it wasn't quite good enough. So uh, it's made me even more um, uncompromising about getting something right yeah. in a way, or ma or at least making sure that I make my best work because mm. I know that I'm going to be an embarrassing dad anyway <laughs> so to take that for granted but there's a difference between that and mm. sort of one of my boys thinking oh, it's not, not that good 
you know what I mean? It could have been better, you know? So, um, hmm. like you, I hate the idea of the pram in the hallway. I know that's something you've talked about, yeah. isn't it, a lot in yeah. relation to your own family life. The Cyril Connolly aphorism that yeah. the pram in the hallway is the enemy of creativity. What a load of bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's been the opposite for me, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. David Eldridge, thank you very, very much. Oh, I enjoyed that. Thank you. Thanks very much. We do a thing, um, uh, which you might have heard, which you'll hear and you'll discover if you go on to season two, where producer Anushka has facts and questions when she's been listening in. And I don't know if you've got, have you got any facts? You got any questions for Anushka? Um, Further questions from Anushka? I, I only have a question, actually. No facts. No, You've no not been facts. working, mate. You've been. It's <laughs> <laughs> just all so clear. But um, the question is: this um, Exeter University uh, karate gi thing. Yeah. What I wonder is: did you like walk to uni in it, or was there a changing room? And then is it like a rugby changing room beforehand, where you have your lockers and your gi? And when do they get washed? And it just sounds weird. <laughs> so basically, it's a good question. It's a great it's question. We, ne we, we never walked to uni in the gi <laughs> in the autumn or winter terms, but in the summer term, you would walk to, uh, oh. to uni in your gi bottoms because you wouldn't then have to change it. And we would have, uh, we would have like uh, our own lockers. We did get changed and all that. And um, <laughs> even for a bunch of supposedly sensitive drama students, the boys' locker was a always <laughs> a place that was sort of, we suspect more about sort of hangovers, farting, <laughs> girls. Um, you know, yeah, no. How did you just lastly, because I did do karate for quite a few years, what did you tie it up with just a regular coloured belt and did the belt not mean anything? We did it we yeah it was the it was the black belt. It was the it was oh all black. Oh my god what a cheek I know <laughs> <laughs> I know I know yeah I never thought of that before until now actually. Yeah we just but we we didn't we mainly we didn't always wear the jackets actually. We wore mainly the gi bottoms and a black vest and no and bare feet. God, it's awful. It's awful. <laughs> this is very familiar to producer Emily it's as well. Is your physical reaction? I know. I know. I find it actually really uncomfortable. It's just the idea of a uniform for theatre, you know, and a lot of verrucas. Well, I don't know. The thing it makes remind me of is one of our lecturers, Les Reed, where we were doing an exercise. We're all on the floor of the drama studio in our geese with our eyes closed. <laughs> it was taking us, oh. and it was it was like things. You are you are walking you are walking oh. through a forest. <laughs> and, and you can hear the fud fud fudding of your heart <laughs> as he said that we all started to get the giggles you know like 40 drama students started to sort of giggle uh, yeah very funny oh, <laughs> thank you very much David Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre, presented by me, Simon Stevens, produced by Anushka Warden and Emily Legg. <laughs>